Listen as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to begin at verse 17. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it has turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer... I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. Having heard God's word, let me pray that God would apply it to our lives. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth that your word comes to us not as mere words of men, but as your word spoken to us. And so, Father, I pray that you would transform our lives that we would be able to imitate Christ, transform our hearts that we would hold on to your gospel more tightly. Lord, I pray that we would put our hope in Jesus Christ, even in the midst of frustrations or trials or temptations, that we would trust in Jesus as our Savior. So, Father, do that work in our hearts. For those that join us with doubts or or questions, I pray that your truth would transform lives that each one of us would acknowledge Jesus to be Savior and Lord. And so we come praying in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life for us. Amen. What advice would you give someone in the midst of tragedy? Natalie Taylor's husband, Josh, is pronounced dead after an accident. He was only 27. She's five months pregnant. In her tragic memoir, she, really the, the edited versions of her journal entries from those first days of walking out of that hospital with that horrific news, she describes her life as, as one in which she felt disoriented, unsettled, disconnected, out of place. A friend of hers helps her prepare for the funeral, a friend who had lost a mother a couple years before, and and remembered some of the terrible things people say at funerals. Well-meaning, but painful. And so she says, she says, Natalie, take this. And she hands to her imaginary cards, little business cards. They're invisible, imaginary. And she says there, there are letters written on them, the letters S-U. And anytime somebody says something terrible to you, you imagine yourself handing them one of them, but in your heart you can scream at them, shut up. Because you've been there. Maybe on the receiving end of some of that well-meaning but terrible words. They were such terrible mistakes that led to the accident. 
I know exactly how you feel. He's in a better place now. God needed another angel. Unhelpful. Many of them completely untrue. Would you have received an SU card from Natalie? What would you say to her? In that moment of of tragedy, in the midst of suffering, what hope is there for us in suffering? See, Paul is writing to the, the church in Thessalonica and describing for them his longing to be with them, to provide comfort to them in the midst of their suffering and his, so that he can be there to to provide meaningful words of comfort, the meaningful presence of of one like a father caring for his children, or, or we saw in a previous sermon like a mother holding her infant child to bring comfort to the child. See, what would you say? What hope is there in the midst of suffering? Is there any gospel hope for us? See, Paul has this deep longing. Look back at verse 17 for the church. He says, brothers, describing the the church as a family, brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time. I mean, that that language is used elsewhere in the ancient world, that that phrase being torn away of, of parents losing a child through tragedy. It's the grief, the horror of the loss of a child. And you, you and I don't need to, to watch the news to know that, that separating a child from his or her parents is a tragedy. We instinctively know it and feel it. And Paul says, like a, like a father ripped from his children, I longed for you, an intense longing. He says, I made every effort to see you. He says, look at verse 2 of chapter 3, that he wants to strengthen and encourage them. He wants to to strengthen their faith, encourage them in their faith. And he says, verse 3, so that they would not be unsettled, knocked over, toppled over by these trials they face. What is their hope in suffering? And so let's look at Paul's encouragement to this church just with, with three simple headings, looking at the gospel mission of the church, their gospel expectations, what they should know to be true, and then the coming gospel glory. So their mission, their expectations, and the coming glory. See, Paul has this longing like a, like a father for his children, and he says, look at verse 18, he, he wanted to come. And, and we notice here that, that most of this letter is written in the plural, that we, because it's a letter from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but there are multiple places, and we see it here twice in our passage, where Paul bursts in and starts speaking in the singular. He is the primary letter writer. That's why we call this one of the Pauline epistles. But he says, look at, look at verse 18, I, I, Paul, wanted to come to you again and again, once, twice, many times I tried. But what was it, who was it, that is to be blamed for Paul's failure to return? Now, perhaps surprising to you or to me, look at verse 18, Paul says, But Satan stopped us. Satan, the devil, the the evil supernatural personal force at work against the mission of the church. 
And that should be a reminder to us. It was a reminder to, to our students. I encouraged them this morning that they should see the, the week in which they're going in mission as a, as a real spiritual battle. See, if, if, if Satan never buffets your life, then maybe it's because he wants to keep you content doing nothing. But when we're on mission, then Satan will try and stop the spread of the gospel. But you see, you see in some sense the irony here. Satan, with more power than you and I can imagine, the, the greatest force still left on earth cannot stop the work of the gospel because, yes, Paul is prevented from going back to Thessalonica, but where does it send him? It will send him from Athens into Corinth, a city where the gospel has not yet been heard. And so Satan's plans actually force the gospel to continue its forward march through history. And then, and then more than that, notice, notice the mission of the church here. Paul will send back Timothy. Paul can't go, but Timothy can. Now, maybe it's because Timothy, with a, with a Greek father, could blend in culturally a little easier than Silas and, and Paul, who you would immediately pick out as, those must, be, those must be Jews from the eastern part of the empire. Whereas Timothy could slip unnoticed. Or maybe it's because even in Satan's eyes, Timothy? You mean Timothy, who just became a believer on this missionary journey. Timothy, who barely knows what he's talking about. Timothy, who, who never actually stands up front and speaks out loud very much. Timothy? Fine, send Timothy. Because he's just the junior partner. But, but notice, and this should be an encouragement to each one of us, that God will use us if we are willing to go. Because Satan may have written off Timothy as unimportant, but, but notice how Paul describes him. Look back at verse 2. So we sent Timothy, who is our brother. He is in fellowship with us. He is part of God's family. He belongs with us. And then notice this description. I mean, this description is so bold that, that, that when, when he says he is God's fellow worker, that my Bible, maybe yours has this, a little footnote at the bottom that says that scribes, when they were translating this later, decided that's too big of a title for a little guy like Timothy. We're going to soften that a little bit. We, to, to call him God's fellow worker, he is in partnership with God, taking the gospel of God, and he's carrying with him, we hear, he is doing the work of spreading the gospel, the gospel which is a message of Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you today. You have the privilege to take the gospel to places that I might not even be able to go. Maybe just by virtue of my, my title, my position as a, as a pastor, a minister. Because the people that need to hear the gospel, well, maybe the, their picture of a preacher is the guys they've seen on TV. And not the respectable guys. And so they think, well, I'm not going to listen to him. But they'll listen to you. Or maybe in your school. It would be weird, and thankfully when I show up to your school, the doors are locked so that they won't let men like me wander the halls just talking to students, but they will let you speak with your friends and neighbors. And so you are sent on mission. And don't you see how that actually helps us in the midst of suffering? Because it gives us a, a, a direction to go, a purpose, a reason that we're moving forward. The gospel is the reason we can endure in the midst of suffering. And, and Paul has this longing that his gospel efforts would produce real change in the lives of the Thessalonians. He wants to see that, that yes, having heard the gospel, having responded, this church is actually going to grow. 
They're going to be involved in mission. So that he says in verse 5 that, that he's sending Timothy to make sure that the efforts of gospel proclamation weren't pointless, in vain, useless. So you and I are spreading the gospel. This is gospel hope for the missionaries who proclaim the message, but it's also gospel hope for those that receive the message. The gospel itself gives us the power to endure in the midst of suffering. And Paul not only reminds them of their gospel mission, but then reminds them of something he's sure they'll remember, their gospel expectations. They should have known suffering was going to come. Now, if if we look back at at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3, he says he wants them to not be unsettled by trials. And he says, you know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out this way, as you well know. See, Paul's not sure they still believe the gospel. He's sending Timothy back to confirm that. But he's sure they won't have forgotten this part of the message. You will suffer. Now, we might think, Paul, I'm not really sure that's the way you should lead with the gospel message. Why don't you talk about the great plan God has for their lives or how how their lives will change, how the the weight of guilt will be lifted from them, how they'll have freedom in their relationships. All of those things are true, but, but Paul made sure. The one thing he's absolutely certain they will remember is that this gospel message, believing in it, means you are signing up for suffering. Now, in the ancient world, suffering was a sign of shame, of dishonor, because it meant that the gods, or at least the really rich people in town, didn't think highly enough of you to bless you with a good life. And so if you were suffering, it was a sign that that you had done something wrong, that you had dishonored your family, that you you had harmed your own prospects in some way. Now, you and I, we might not use the language of shame quite as much as they did in the ancient world, although I think we feel the weight of shame. But you and I, see, we don't, we don't in the 21st century expect the gospel to involve suffering because we've come to believe, well, my life should be more comfortable than that. I mean, when you face suffering, don't you ask those kinds of questions like, why me? Why now? This is having an inconvenient time. Doesn't God know all that's going on in my life? Why is this suffering come into my life? Don't you ask those questions? See, we instinctively, and maybe even more so today because we live in a day and age in which comfort and convenience are held out for us as great ideals today. And so we assume that we should be happy and comfortable. But Paul is making clear to the Thessalonians, and by extension to us, you should have no such expectations of comfort and convenience in your life. No, like the hymn we sang says, like the challenge we offer to our students is, take up your cross and follow me. The gospel should shatter our cultural expectations and change them so that you and I live with what is a Christian theology of suffering, an expectation that you and I will suffer. And so we cannot pretend that suffering does not exist. There are whole worldviews and religious systems trying to convince you of that, but you know when you go through suffering the pain that it causes. 
We cannot ignore it. We can try by spending money or going to to great places to, to avoid pain and discomfort, but it always finds us again. We cannot simply anesthetize ourselves to the pain, although we might try in a multitude of ways by distraction. We must face our suffering. As Christians, we should even expect suffering. But, but I do need you to listen carefully. Because if you're in a position where someone is harming you, then listen carefully. I'm not telling you that's okay. I'm not even telling you to stay. You should seek whatever help you need. Come to us as pastors. Come speak with a deacon, deaconess, an elder, to get the help that you need. Because the, the Christian theology of, of suffering is not, is not just a, a blind acceptance of suffering. No, it's a recognition that, yes, we should expect suffering for the sake of the gospel. We should endure in the midst of suffering, but we should also pursue justice because notice what Paul will do next. This is all set in the context of Paul speaking about the return of Jesus Christ. The gospel expectation includes this future-oriented expectation of coming glory, of gospel glory. Look in verse 19. Paul, describing the the ministry of Satan, actually speaks back to the, the Thessalonians, and he says, for what is our hope, our joy? What is the crown in which we will glory? The, the, the crown, the victor's crown, the laurel wreath placed on, on the, the race winner's head. What is that which will give us hope and joy and glory? It's you, church. That's what he says. It's you. You heard the gospel. You believed it as it really is, the Word of God. You responded, you are our glory and joy. But, but, but notice in verse 19 that this is set in the context of the return of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I typically avoid giving you Greek words, partly because I have trouble remembering them, and you will probably have trouble remembering them. But here is, in this this verse, in verse 19, it's talking about the parousia, which is a word used in the ancient world of the the coming, the appearance of a dignitary. So if you had a, a high official coming to your city, you would speak of the parousia, the appearance of this great... If the emperor were going to come to Thessalonica, it would be a parousia. And in the New Testament, this word is used almost in a technical sense to describe the second coming of Jesus when he returns as Lord and judge. And so it doesn't explicitly say it here, that he is coming as judge. But when you look at the way that word is used elsewhere here in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and then when you see how the gospel writers, particularly the gospel of Matthew, use that word parousia, it's a description of the second coming of Christ when he returns as judge. And that should be, if you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ, that should be a frightening proposition to you today. Jesus Christ sees your sin, he sees the injustice that you have done, and he will not tolerate it. Jesus Christ will come in judgment. And so your only hope, if you've not yet acknowledged Jesus to be Lord as your Savior and Rescuer, is to repent, to turn from your sin, and to find your hope in Jesus Christ. But you see, church, how Paul is using this this language of the return of the Lord Jesus He's using it to bring comfort because it means that your suffering is not ignored. 
It is not unnoticed. Jesus will return to deal with all that has gone wrong in this world. And, and, and one commentator reminds us that this should also challenge us, this Christian theology of suffering, to see this in the grand scope of what God is doing in history. From creation to the return of Christ and the, the new creation. See, yeah, we, we often think of, of our endurance and suffering in very personal, individual terms, which is a good thing. What might God want to teach you in the midst of suffering? What lessons in humility should you be learning? How should you be imitating Christ in this moment to look more like Christ? Those are lessons we should learn. But Paul also wants us to see the grand scope of, of theology from, the, from creation when God made everything. And despite our rebellion against God, God did not abandon us but sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us. Jesus Christ, buried and dead, was raised on the third day and has ascended into heaven. He will return. See, when you see the grand scope of history, then you realize your only hope in the midst of suffering is that Jesus Christ suffered for you, that you identify, that's the way Paul will speak elsewhere, that, that you identify with Christ in his sufferings, by suffering. You are united to Christ. It is a way in which our faith is made practical and real for us now. But it's also that future gospel promise. It allows the oppressed believers in Thessalonica to endure. It allows Paul, at the threat of riot, his life on the line to endure, with Satan himself as an as an as a foe opposing Paul's ministry, he will endure because Jesus Christ is coming again. See, it's the gospel mission which propels us forward, moving us that there's a reason I'm doing this. Jesus Christ gave his life, and I get the joy, the privilege of proclaiming that message. Our gospel expectations should shatter our cultural assumptions when we think I should be happy and healthy all my days with no discomfort or inconvenience. That is not truth until the return of Jesus Christ brings the new heavens and new earth to fulfillment. And that coming glory, the lordship of Jesus Christ, gives us hope to endure. Mary certainly ran this year's Boston Marathon in honor of a friend enduring cancer treatments. Mary convinces her doctors to let her run because she herself had endured treatments, had received a bone marrow transplant, which left her at increased risk of infection. And so the doctors give her permission to run if, if she can't go on, she will genuinely stop. Now, if you followed the Boston Marathon, this year's weather conditions were terrible. It was cold and windy with a constant deluge of rain. Mary presses on even after several stops at the health tents. And one of those, even meeting one, a nurse volunteering there who had cared for her dur during her previous treatments. But by mile 15 and a half, she can't continue. But finishing this race honoring her friend. This had been her, her goal. Her husband comes to retrieve her at the Dunkin' Donuts that she'd slipped into. 
call him from? And she's broken. She's drenched. She's exhausted. She's already been running for five hours at this point, enduring constant pain, and she just wants to finish. But he can't let her go on. He can't let her keep running. And so, so he offers her an option. Let's go home. You get a hot shower, you rest, and we'll come back. After the rain stops, we'll come back and we'll run the rest of the race together. And so she relents and agrees to his plan. They return again to the Dunkin' Donuts and start the rest of the race. And he's keeping tabs on social media, showing pictures of their progress. Family and friends begin to gather and encourage her along the way. The race organizers come back. Police shut down the finish line to traffic so that as Mary turns the corner after midnight, she can finish this race with the cheers of family pulling her forward. Not the best finishing time. It's not even an official finish. But she endured. She kept going buoyed by the cheers of family to bring her to the end. Oh, dear church, continue to run, endure in suffering, keep going. Jesus Christ himself, our Lord, he will return. You can finish. There is an end to this race. There is hope for you at the finish line. And so look to the finish. Don't be unsettled by the trials of life. Don't give up in the midst of suffering. We should expect suffering. We can endure for the sake of the mission of the church. The gospel message transforms you, and the gospel itself will propel you to the finish. Let me pray for us. Father, we come, many of us weakened, and broken by the trials of life. We feel the weight of the torment of the tempter. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us the strength to endure, the trust to put our hope in Jesus Christ. Lord, for those that doubt whether this message could be true, that doubt whether the, there could be goodness at the end of the story, Lord, I pray that you would give them faith right now to believe, to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Father in heaven, I pray that you would be with our students as they eat lunch, they finish their training this afternoon, and they go. They go this week to serve in the hope of the gospel. Let their boldness be an example to us as a church to go in, in gospel hope, to endure in the face of suffering, to find comfort in the gospel. Lord, make us a church that is bold in proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ because he is our Savior he is the Lord who will return in glory. And so we long for that day. We pray now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.